The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and uh, it is my privilege to be the senior pastor here at uh, Christ the King. And this morning, we are going to be uh, continuing in our series, our summer series, looking at various psalms. Uh, we've been doing this for the last number of weeks, and we'll continue for the next couple of weeks until just after Labor Day. And this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 107. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to uh, Psalm 107. There are also Bibles in the chairs in front of you, and we'll project the passage on the wall in just a moment. But before we jump into this psalm, I, I just want to take a, a moment and express my thanks uh, to you, uh, this church, to, uh, for the love and care that you have shown yet again to my family. So as Kat has undergone uh, another surgery, um, y'all have shown us love, and we are so thankful for it. Um, we are so thankful that uh, God called us to come here a little over seven years ago, and that uh, he gave you to us and us to you, and um, we're thankful for the, the texts and the calls and the cards and uh, the meals. We are very thankful for the meals <laughs> and, uh, and for the prayers, so uh, thank you for loving us well. Well, this morning, uh, the psalm that we're going to be looking at is a psalm of thanksgiving. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. We don't know who the author is. This is one of the the Psalms, where the author isn't told to us in the superscript, in the, in the title. Um, but what we do think is that uh, the Psalm was written as the people were coming out of exile, that it was written to a post-exilic community. So you remember that at one point in the history of Israel, they had rebelled against God, they had sinned against him, and as a way of bringing judgment and punishment upon God's people, he sent them into exile, where they had to live under the reign and rule of a foreign nation. But after a period of time, God allowed them to return, to come back to Jerusalem, to take the land again. And we believe that this psalm was written to those people, that the psalmist is thinking and he's reflecting upon that return from exile as he pens these words. And as he thinks about that, what he writes is thanks. And so we read this psalm of thanksgiving. Now, we're not going to read all 43 verses. It's quite a long psalm. We're going to just read the first three verses to begin with, and we'll touch on the other verses as we go through the sermon. But Psalm 107, beginning in verse 1. Who give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from troubled trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that as we consider what you have done on our, on our behalf, how you have redeemed and delivered us, how you have cared for us, that our hearts and our mouths would be filled with thanks. So we pray that you would meet with us. We need your help. Open our eyes, unplug our ears, soften our hearts. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
So G.K. Chesterton was uh, a writer, a novelist, uh, and, and general thinker. And G.K. Chesterton wrote about many things. In fact, my favorite chapter of any book is The Ethics of Elfland in his book, Orthodoxy. It's worth the price of the book just for that chapter. I encourage you to go read it, The Ethics of Elfland. But in Orthodoxy, as well as in other of his writings, Chesterton talks about the world around us. He talks about the ways in which people are to interact. He talks about God, and he talks about sin. He talks about humanity, and he talks about thanksgiving. In fact, that's a, a topic that he talks a great deal about. He says things like, like we should be thankful for the stockings that hang over the chimney that are filled with Christmas gifts, but we should also thank God that he gives us legs to fill those stockings with. He says things like, we should give thanks before a meal, but, but not just a meal, we should give thanks as we go to the concert or to the opera, before we open a book or look at a painting, that when we jump in the lake and go for a swim or go for a walk through the woods, our mouths should be filled with thanks. He encourages us not to take for granted the things of this world, but, but to take these things with gratitude. And in one place, Chesterton writes, thanks is the highest form of thought. Gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Thanks is the highest form of thought. And, and for those of us, when we experience the good, when we experience beautiful things, when we experience wonderful things, we know he's right. Right? That the right response to a gift received to an encouraging word spoken, to a meal prepared or a listening ear, the right response is thanks. It's the appropriate response. And that's what we hear in the opening of our psalm, right? Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let those who have known God's grace and experienced his forgiveness, let us say to him, thanks. But what about when our heart isn't very thankful? What about when thanks is far from our minds? Right? What about when we face trouble and difficulty? When we face sorrow and sadness? We can hear these words, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And it can sort of sound like a parent forcing a child to be grateful for something that they never wanted. Right, kids? You know what I'm talking about. Imagine it's your birthday. It's your birthday and, and uh, a distant relative who, who you've never met or a friend of your parents, not your friend, but a friend of your parents comes to the birthday to celebrate and, and they present to you a gift and it's sitting before you and you rip open the paper, you're excited and then you realize this shouldn't be given to me, <laughs> right? Like this is a gift that I would never want, <laughs> And so before you can toss it aside, kids, before you can put it away and actually rip into a gift that you're ready to play with, what do your parents say? Now, sweetie, make sure you say thank you. Wasn't it thoughtful of them? 
Wasn't it nice of them, right? And, and rightfully so. Your parents are trying to build into you a sense of gratitude, right? Even for the things maybe that you didn't want. So it's good that they do this. But, but what happens is that you end up flashing a fake smile and through gritted teeth say, thank you. <laughs> right? That's what we do. And when we hear the psalmist saying, give thanks, it can feel like that parent who's telling us through gritted teeth to say thanks. To flash that fake smile. To pretend like whatever has come our way, whether it be surgery or diagnosis or joblessness or difficult relationship, like this is what we were longing for and so thank you. Is that what the psalmist is doing here? Is that what he's wanting from us? Now, before answering that question, we need to point out the fact that the psalmist doesn't have rose-colored lenses in reflection to this world, right? Like, he's not looking at this world and pretending like sadness and sorrow don't exist. No, he knows it clearly. Because in this psalm, he speaks of calamity and crying, he speaks of calamity and crying. So this psalm is broken up into seven sections. Okay, seven sections. The first and the seventh sections are verses 1 through 3 and verse 43. They are prologue and epilogue to our psalm. But right after the prologue, we have four sections, sections 2 through 5, that speak of calamity. Each one of these sections is introduced with the word some. So you see it, section 2, verses 4 through 9, some wandered. Section 3, verses 10 through 16, some sat in darkness. Section 4, verses 17 through 22, some were fools. And section 5, verses 23 through 32, some went down to the sea. And so in each one of these four sections, what the psalmist is doing is he is describing a different calamity that came upon Israel throughout their history. So in the first section, some wandered, right? And we know about the wandering in the wilderness that Israel experienced and how in their wandering they grumbled and complained how they were given to thirst and to hunger. Section two, some were in prison. They sat in darkness. He's speaking of them being imprisoned by foreign nations. They were sent into exile. They rebelled against God and were put into subjection. Section three, they were foolish through their sin. Their sinful ways were brought upon them, and, and affliction and destruction came upon them. And in section four, they're confronted by their finitude, by their smallness in the face of creation. You see, Israel thought too much of themselves. They thought too much of their strength and of their might, but when they are confronted by the might of the mountain and the power of the storm and the depth of the sea, they see that they are small and insignificant. You see, in each one of these situations, in each one of these sections, Israel is confronted not just by their wandering ways and their exile and their sin and their smallness, but they are ultimately confronted by the fact that they cannot save themselves. They couldn't provide for themselves in the wilderness, and they couldn't defeat the nations, and they couldn't run from their sin, and they have no power over the storm. And we know what this is like, don't we? 
I mean, we haven't gone through every one of these individually, right? We haven't wandered in the wilderness, though sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? Like the, the world around us, like our hearts even, are like parched ground, right? And, and Peter actually, in First Peter, says that we are exiles, that this, is, this place, this world that we dwell in, that we inhabit, it doesn't feel like home because it's not our home. We are citizens of another nation, right? It's citizens of heaven. And so we live as exiles, and we know our sin and the foolishness that it brings. And every one of us has felt small and finite when we stand on top of a mountain or we stand on the shore of the sea. We know the calamity that the psalmist speaks of. And for Israel, they had come to their end. And so what do they do? What do we do? Where do they turn? Where will we turn? Well, we see it. The psalmist says they cried out. There's a repeated phrase in every one of these sections. There's a repeated phrase. It says, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, whether it's in their wandering or in their sin, whether it's in their exile or in their finitude, they cried out to God. You see, one of the marks of being the people of God is we are those who cry out. That we don't look to ourselves. When we come to the end of ourselves, when we are confronted with a situation or circumstance, when we are in need, we recognize we are not the masters of our fate. We are not the captains of our soul. We cry out to God. We turn to him. Whatever our calamity might be, we cry out because God is the one who delivers. He's the one who reverses. You see, that's another repeated phrase in each one of these sections. That when they cry out to God, we hear the psalmist say, and he delivered them from their distress. God delivered them. He saved them. He rescued them. In each calamity, look at this, in verse 7. He led them by a straight way till they reached the city to dwell in. Out of the wilderness, he brought them to safety. Verse 14, he brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Out of exile, he brought them into his freedom. Verse 20, he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. In the midst of their sin, he brought healing and redemption. Verse 29, he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Out of the storm, God brought calm. You see, what the psalmist is telling us is that regardless of the calamity, whatever it is that they're facing and feeling, that God hears their cries. He sees their calamity and he delivers his people. He delivers us because God's a God of reversals. He reverses the fortunes of his people. And we see this in section 6. That's the last section that I haven't made any reference to. Section 6 is verses 33 through 42. Follow along there. The psalmist writes, He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water and parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. 
By his blessing, they multiplied greatly, and he does not let the livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. So we see this reversal taking place, right? This is actually the only section that isn't addressed to Israel. That's not talking to Israel. It's not calling Israel to respond or to do something or speaking of their calamity. That's focus is on the Lord. And what does he do? He turns rivers into deserts. But then he turns deserts and makes them flow with water. He takes the parched land and he makes it bear fruit. He takes the proud and brings them low. He takes the lowly and raises them up. God reverses the fortunes of man. He reverses the fortunes of his people. And think about this. This is what God is doing throughout Scripture. Right? Throughout the history of, of, of redemption, this is what God is doing time and again. Like when God made a people that outnumber the stars in the sky from a man who could not have children, right, from Abraham. How he reverses the situation by taking a shepherd boy who was the smallest of the brothers, who was ignored, who was sent out into the field, who no one wanted to be bothered by, and he made him the mighty and great king of Israel. How he took a barren woman named Hannah and heard her cries and gave her a son, and how he took a young and ignored woman named Mary, woman, please, child named Mary, and made her this, the mother of Jesus, so that this one who was overlooked and passed by, she would sing, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. This one who no one would have heard of, we now sing praise concerning what God has done to her. We call her blessed. He took a group of uneducated and ignored fishermen and built his church. We could go on. All the reversals, right? Joseph and Moses, Deborah and Amos, Mary Magdalene and Paul. What God is doing time and again is reversing the fortunes of his people. And the greatest of these is Christ. Because Jesus was in heaven, the place where he was to be worshipped, and he took on flesh, and he dwelt amongst his creation. The creator entered into his creation. The one who was rich became poor, so that by his poverty he might make us rich. The giver of life took on death. He who knew no sin became sin, so that we who were dead in our sin would become the righteousness of God. You see, the greatest reversal that God ever engages in is the giving of his son to deliver us. And because of that deliverance, because of that great reversal, that is why we give thanks. You see, now we come back to where we began. We come back and we see why it is that we give thanks and why it is that the psalmist would say, oh, give thanks. It's because God is the one who is delivered and reversed our fortunes. You see, there's another repeated refrain in this passage. In each one of those sections of calamity, in verses 8, 15, 21, and 31, after God delivers his people, we hear, let them thank the Lord 
for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Do you hear what the psalmist is saying? We don't rejoice at our difficulty, and we don't celebrate our sorrow, but we give thanks in the midst of it. We give thanks in the midst of it and after it is over because in the midst of it we know that God's love does not change. That his steadfast love continues. Right, that word steadfast love, if you've been with us in the past, you've heard me say that that word steadfast love, it is the translation of the Hebrew word chesed. And every single time in the Psalms you see steadfast love, I've checked, I've double checked, Every single time you see steadfast love, it is a translation of that Hebrew word. And that Hebrew word is getting at God's covenantal love. Sally Lloyd-Jones probably has the best definition of what this love looks like when she says that it's a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Y'all, we give thanks because God's love never stops. Because his love never fails. The way that, the, that Paul puts it in Romans 8 is that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, God's love is stronger than any calamity we may face. God's love is stronger than anything even in creation. God's love will never fail. It will never fail. And his love is shown in his wondrous works. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. The works that he has accomplished on our behalf, the reversal and deliverance of his people, this is a reflection of his love. And we know this because the greatest work is the giving of his son. And Jesus himself said it was given out of love. Because in John 3.16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. And the apostle John in 1 John 4 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, it is out of God's love that he worked wondrously. It is out of God's love that he didn't leave us in our calamity. It is in, out of God's love that he delivers and reverses. And so we give thanks. Chesterton was right. It's the highest form of thought. Gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. And for those of us who know the wondrous works of God, who know the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, we know that our calamity by Christ is turned to deliverance, that our cries have been reversed to joy, and that our mouths are filled with thanks. Let's give him thanks now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. Thank you that you have sent your son, that you have delivered your people, 
that regardless of our circumstance or situation, your love will not leave us and your love will not fail. And so we pray that you would help us to turn our eyes towards you, that you would fill our hearts with gratitude and on our lips there would be thanks. Thank you, God, for your love. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the deliverance that you have won for us. Thank you for making us your people. And we pray all this in Christ's name and God's people said together, amen.